0: Today's recording begins on page 263. William. Vernon turned on the overhead lights and lit up a robusto as soon as I let him inside the shop. He handed one to Cleet, too, and Cleet near burst from pride as Vernon lit it from him. Then Cleet sucked in a big lungful of smoke that turned him green as springtime in the light from Mama's Chinese lanterns. Vernon cackled and smacked his head, saying, Ain't supposed to inhale, son. Then he offered one to me. I declined, and Vernon shrugged, said, Here's the story. Me and my friends have been deputized special to help shut down this Negro uprising we got going on, and as a duly sworn officer of the law, I'm enlisting your help. I must have looked as dubious as I felt, for Cleet said, It's true, Will. Some old guy down at the courthouse wouldn't hand over his pistol when a white deputy... "'Told him to. Next thing you know, there's guns firing and seven kinds of hell breaking loose, "'and all because those Greenwood boys don't know their place.' "'Vernon grunted and started in like General per- Perishing himself, "'talking about skirmish lines and battle plans "'and how the Negroes had made their stand just south of Third Street. "'Turns out some of them fought in the war and picked up a thing or two about combat,' he said. "'We aim to show them they've been better off learning to duck.' At that he took Mabel out of the holster on his belt and carved two more notches into her with his pocket knife. Cleek grinned and looked back and forth between me and Vernon, asking, Did I know what the notches meant? He knows, Vernon said, squinting against the wavering column of smoke from his cigar. Then he blew the filings off Mabel, said, Now we've got the ammo we count for. The three of us best get moving. We got a long night ahead of us. Only I didn't want to go anywhere with Vernon and Cleet and their guns, so I said again how Pop had told me to guard the store, and Cleet insisted Pop had sent them to get me. He truly said that? I asked Cleet direct. He said for you to fetch me? Cleet's eyebrows furrowed. Well, he didn't get a chance to come right and say it for us to fetch you, he said, but that's only because we got separated once the fighting heated up which told me straight off that Pop hadn't said any such thing and that I'd been suckered into opening the shop door in the first place, though of course there would have been hell to pay if I hadn't. After that, Cleet yammered on about war and duty and white men needing to stand up for what was theirs. Vernon's dead eyes stayed on me until Cleet finally shut up. Then Vernon said, listen to me and listen close, half-breed. There's good negroes and bad ones good ones know their place bad ones don't what's happening here tonight is an old-fashioned purge we're gonna flush the bad ones out of tulsa once and for all i gave no response for there was nothing i could think to say then vernon pushed his face so close to mine that i felt the heat from the tip of his cigar against my cheek i'll brook no cowardice boy he said now you quit pissing and moaning like a damned woman and camp and come fight i thought of joseph and ruby then and angelina and her grandbabies and knew in my heart what i believed no sir mr fish i said softly i can't do that clee was silent beside me vernon's face went white with fury he walked to the demo machine pop and i used to play music for customer and casual as could be pushed it over wood splintered metal twisted let's try that again vernon said You're going to come with us right now, or so help me, God, I'll destroy every last thing in this place and tell your paw you weren't man enough to protect it from rioters. Cleet here will back me up, won't you? Cleet focused on his boots, but mumbled yes quick enough. And though the thought of Vernon running the shop was none too pleasant, it was my fear of what he'd do if he found Joseph in the back room that tipped the scales on my decision once and for all. All right, Mr. Fish, I said, I'll come good vernon muttered then he spun me about by the shoulders and shoved me out the door i sat on the sidewalk saying i had to lock up then i went slow as i could leaning my spring fillet against the door dropping the keys pretending to the bolt was stubborn so that by the time i looked up and across the street cleat had got behind the wheel of his daddy's cadillac and vernon was climbing in the- to the seat beside him their cigars glowed red in the hot night air and through. Though darkness cloaked Vernon's features, I could still picture the smile on his face, the one saying he'd won, and I was nothing but a stupid boy. Shots sounded to the north, so many I lost count, then silence, until Vernon Fish broke it. Let's go, half-breed, he cried. The night's young, and we've got killing to do. The Cadillac's engine growled to life. My pulse quickened, and without letting myself overthink the matter, I loosed a curse loud and vivid enough to make Vernon and Cleet spin around, mouths open, in surprise. Forgot my shotgun shells, I hollered. Before either one of them could say a word to stop me, I was through the door. I hadn't locked in the first place. Joseph! I yelled, running to the storeroom. But there was no sign of him there, and my heart sank, worrying he'd gone out through the back. I called his name again as I swapped the door keys in my hand for the truck keys in my pocket. And just as I was about to go look for Joseph in the alley, I heard my name from the darkest corner of the room. There being no time to chat, chat, I shouted for him to follow me to the truck. Then the two of us were outside in the warm night air, running on the balls of our feet to keep our heels from clipping the concrete. I got in my side and jammed the key into the ignition, praying that the engine would catch easy. For once, the heavens listened, so that as soon as Joseph had got beside me with the passenger door shut, I hit the reverse pedal and dropped the throttle level hard. The truck bucked and squealed onto Main Street like an unbroken horse. I swung its nose north, went to neutral, stomped the clutch, and promptly felt the engine go dead. There we were, asked backwards to Vernon and Cleet, motor stalled. Cleet shouting, Vernon sputtering, the Cadillac's engine revving. I stepped on the starter. The truck's motor turned and refused to catch. The Cadillac backed towards us. I saw Vernon fish in my rearview mirror, looking angry and exhilarated all at once. Then he caught sight of Joseph next to me, and the look turned into something else altogether. At that moment, everything felt far away and quiet. I had no heartbeat, no breath. There was only the heavy night air against my damp skin and the stubborn whine of the truck's engine. I hovered in the nothingness, suspended somewhere between where I needed to be and where I was, until a bullet stripped the haze from around me. It passed by so close that the percussion of it hurt my ears. I turned and saw Vernon's hand raise, aiming Mabel's muzzle at the truck. Joseph shook my arm and screamed for me to go. I pressed the starter one more time. The engine rolled and caught and roared. I pushed the clutch in. First gear took. And finally, finally, we were moving north. Faster, Joseph said, quiet at first, but louder once Cleet got at the Cadillac moving behind us. Headlamps shone in the windscreen glass. I rubbed the engine high and shifted into second. Then Joseph was pointing left and saying to turn so he didn't drive straight into the battle line of white men fighting black. I did as he said at the next street, cutting hard enough that the whole trunk tilted into the turn. Our tires held the road, though, carrying us west with the twin orbs of the Cadillac's headlamps close behind. Joseph leaned forward with his hands on the dashboard and said something I couldn't hear. What? I shouted. Rain, he replied, which made no sense at all only it did make me think on water and how we were heading towards the arkansas river and the long flat stretch of road running alongside it out to sand springs on a straightaway like that the cadillac could catch us in no time so i banked hard right at the next street and accelerated near bouncing out of my seat as we crossed the frisco tracks the cadillac stuck tight then a whistle sounded loud in my ears and joseph said rain again only that time i heard the t in front of it and understood he had been saying train all along for there was a train just ahead of us on the Katy tracks coming fast. I knew I couldn't turn right because of the gun battle or left because the Cadillac would catch us. And backwards? Well, that was no option at all. The Cadillac was gaining. The train whistle shrieked louder. Joseph's hand was in front of my face, pointing to the freight engine barreling towards us on our left. Stop! He screamed. Stop! Only I didn't. I mashed the throttle lever down, and gasoline flowed wide open into the truck's gullet as we barreled towards the oncoming train and its light shone blinding white into my window, and the roar of its whistle rattled my heart in its cage. Our front wheels hit the tracks, and we were in the air. Then we were plunging forward, crashing nose-first into the ground. The rear tires hit after hard enough, so the truck bounced up and down as train cars thundered behind us in a fury of screaming metal and brakes. I eased the throttle back. Joseph slumped on the bench beside me. You're crazy, Will, he whispered. There was fear in his voice, but admiration, too. I clenched my right hand into a fist and opened it wide, freeing up the muscles that I had locked down on the steering wheel. Did the same with my left, and there was no denying the truth in what Joseph had said. Nice evening for a drive, I said two blocks later. Joseph smiled, which made me smile, too. And it was good that we didn't have a clue what lay ahead of us. Elsewise, we might well have stayed a northward course. Driving until our gas was gone in the Oklahoma state line was nothing but a ghost in the dust behind us. The first family we saw fleeing Greenwood was on foot. Two children, a man, a woman with a babe clutched tight to her chest. The man hunched forward struggling under the weight of a lumpy flower embroidered sack. It was a tablecloth loaded up, I supposed, with the family's picture, family's silverware china, pictures, things they worked hard for things meant to be handed down more came after them where are they all going i asked joseph into the hills he replied some drove most walk a few pedaled bicycles there were children too so many children an old woman and old men and everything in between struggling under the weight of their belongings and their situation i thought about the bright waters huddled together in the dark of angelina's quarters and wondered if freddie had stopped crying over his dog then joseph was pointing to a figure ahead of us telling me to stop i know him he said please the young man had an ancient musket slung over his shoulder so rusty i doubted it had been fired since the battle at gettysburg even so he shrugged it off onto his hands as we drew near gideon joseph called out gideon right it's me joseph Goodhope." the musket's muzzle dropped and gideon squinted against the headlamps as he watched the passenger side Then he must have seen my pale skin in the moonlight, for he backed up a step and raised the musket high. It's all right, Joseph said. Will's helping me. Gideon took a step closer, face dark with suspicion, saying, Why? I don't rightly know, Joseph said. Why are you helping him? Gideon asked me direct, and though I wasn't exactly sure, his rusty musket inspired me to come up with an answer quick. Because of Ruby, I said. At that, the musket dropped, and Gideon scowled even better than Joseph could, saying, That girl's like a skeeter bite on the ass. He stared at me hard, and I looked from him to Joseph and back again, until suddenly the three of us were laughing, nervous and quiet, but laughing nonetheless. Then Gideon slung the musket over his shoulder and leaned against Joseph's door, tapping a finger on the metal. He told us there was a line of armed, colored men at the southern edge of the Negro quarter. <coughs> no, Harley. Nope. Go lay down. Fighting to keep bands of renegade whites out of the colored neighborhoods. There was some frid- fighting down at the Frisco tracks earlier, he said, but it's been pretty quiet for a while now. Then why are you leaving? Joseph asked. Gideon said how his ma had gone up to stay with her sister in Claremore earlier that day, and it didn't seem worth risking a belly full of lead just to stick around and see what would happen. Plenty of folks took off already, he said, but there's others staying, thinking what happened at the courthouse was just a misunderstanding. They're locked in their houses now, praying for Sunrise to put things right. I could tell by the way he said it that Gideon considered those people fools. Far as I was concerned, he was right. I'd seen the hate in Vernon's eyes and heard the evil in his voice at the shop. For men like him, the old normal wasn't an option anymore. Then Joseph asked, had Gideon seen Ruby or his ma?" And Gideon's face pinched up. I thought you knew, he said. Joseph stiffened, said, Knew what? Well, that they took her, Gideon replied. Then Joseph opened the door of the truck so hard it pushed Gideon back. He grabbed Gideon's collar and yanked him up and shook him, shouting, What do you mean they took her? Gideon kept calm. Three white men. They found your ma looking for Ruby along, down along Archer and they took her. Leastways, that's what I heard. Joseph let go, whispered, Where? Gideon said he wasn't sure, but the word had got around that they were holding Negro prisoners in Convention Hall. Then Joseph turned even quieter, asking had they heard her. Gideon looked at the ground. Well, did they? Joseph demanded. And Gideon looked sorry as he could be, saying, She was alive. That's all I know. I leaned over towards the passenger side, saying Joseph's name loud enough for him to hear. He looked at me all dull and numb. Then Gideon put his hand on Joseph's shoulder and said he was sorry. We have to find Ruby now, I said, strong as I dared. Joseph nodded and got in the truck, and Gideon turned north and started walking. Eliza Clark turned me down for prom so she could go with Gideon, Joseph said as we pulled away. It's tomorrow, you know. She is supposed to be with the decorating committee at the Stratford Hotel ballroom tonight, getting things ready. She was so excited. I tried saying I was sorry, not just for the Booker T. Washington prom that seemed unlikely to occur, but I had to stop and clear my throat and try again. The second time, it came out right. Do you think they got Ruby, too? Joseph said by way of response. I had no answer for that. Joseph looked out the window and didn't seem to notice. Won't be any colored folk dancing in Tulsa tomorrow night, he said. Then he swiped at his eyes with the back of his sleeve and let me drive on. Rowan. Hello? Geneva's voice was wary when she answered the phone. It's Rowan Chase, I said. Insert awkward silence. I tried again. The one with the remains in her back house? I know who you are, she said. It's just that people don't usually call me. Which was sad and honest and perfectly Geneva. I don't have the genetic results, if that's what you're after, she said. I won't have them for at least another week. It's not, I said. Then what do you want? She didn't mention the accident or seemed to have any idea I'd been there when Arvin died. I was just wondering if you had any new information, I said, about the skeleton. Nothing. Hello? Sorry, she said. There's a big hawk overhead. I'm on a dig in Tahlequah. Again, perfectly Geneva. So is there anything new, I asked. She was quiet. Maybe she was thinking about how to respond. Maybe she was still looking at the hawk. Eventually, she cleared her throat and started talking in a calm, clinical voice she used when the subject was her work. As a matter of fact, my friend Bob, the one I sent the pistol and holster to, finished his report yesterday. Can you tell me what it said? I asked. I don't see why not. He used the original manufacturer's mark and serial numbers to trace the gun. It's a Colt M1-911, purchased by the U.S. Army and stamped by someone named... I could hear a notebook wrestling. A.L. Hallstrom. He inspected military M1911s from 1916 to 1917. Bob says the gun parts were all original, and the gun itself was produced in 1917. The holster was standard issue. It was stamped with initials, too. No wrestling that time. Just a pause. Here it is. The initials were VF. But Bob said the first letter was modified at some point after the gun was distributed. He isn't positive, but he thinks it was originally an R. He searched World War I draft registration cards, and the best match he could come up with was a Raymond Fisher from Dick Decatur, Georgia. I scribbled down what she said on an empty page at the back of my Calc Notebook and asked if Bob happened to mention anything anything about Raymond Fisher coming to Tulsa. No, she said, but it's possible. He went AWOL while he was on leave for his mother's funeral in 1919 and was never found. Did she live in Tulsa? Decatur. Still, he could have been the killer, I said more to myself than her. My hand had cramped from writing so fast and all kinds of scenarios were playing out in my head. Or the killed, Geneva said. According to his draft card, Raymond Fisher was black. I didn't go to Arvin's Candlelight Vigil in Reconciliation Park that night. Part of me wanted to be around other people who cared that he died, but another part knew the funeral the next day would be hard enough. So while people gathered in Greenwood to remember him, I sat on one of the chaise lounges by our pool, listening to peepers and staring west at the glow of the refinery lights along the Arkansas. Their flare stacks were dark. Some night, flames shot out, burning off waste overflow. I used to pretend those stacks were dragons breathing fire into the night when I was little. I knew better. My father was an oilman, after all. But even as a kid, I'd like the idea of dragons better than the thought of burning petrochemical waste. Dad came out after a while and lay down on the chaise beside me. How you doing, kiddo? Okay, I said. Cloudy tonight. "'It was a nothing comment. "'Dad isn't usually big on chit-chat "'unless he's working his way up to something bigger. "'I knew the best thing to do was ignore the small talk "'and let him go on to the big reveal on his own. "'That night, it didn't take long. "'Your mother just got a call "'from her friend at the district attorney's office. "'They haven't announced it yet, "'but they're not charging Jerry Randall. "'They're calling it self-defense.' "'I looked at the clouds and blinked back "'the stupid tears in my eyes. "'What are you thinking?' Dad asked. "'Rowan?' "'Yeah?' Do you think they made the right call? They didn't believe me, did they? He sighed. I don't know, but even if they did, I'm not sure your statement would be enough to prove the case. Then again, your mom's a lawyer, not me. What does she think? You'd have to ask her. But one thing I do know is that she believes you, and so do I. A train whistle sounded up where the tracks crossed Peoria. Are you okay, kiddo? As okay as I can be, I said. We sat there for a while, looking west until a column of flames flared up into the western sky. One of your dragons is awake, Dad said. There's no such thing as dragons, Dad. Don't be so sure, he said softly. Then he left me alone to stare at the sky, imagining the flames were for Arvin, wishing dragons were real after all. There hadn't been any public announcement about Arvin's funeral, so the size of the crowd at the cemetery surprised me. Let's stay in the car, Mom said. You can watch from here. "'Some of the people were from the clinic. "'A few more looked like they might have known Arvin from the street. "'Other than that, everyone was a stranger. "'They were black, mostly, and went from a toddler "'in a miniature three-piece suit all the way up "'to an ancient jellybean of a woman "'pushing a walker in front of her. "'Who are they?' I asked. "'Mom looked out the window. "'Family? Folks you grew up with?' "'I watched people get out of their cars "'and walk slowly to the fresh grave. "'It was my fault. I was surprised.' I'd never stopped to think that just because Arvin lived on the street, it didn't mean there weren't people who loved him. There were no reporters in the crowd, though, or anyone else who looked obviously out of place. I want to be with them, I said. Mom and Dad traded a quick look of parental concern. Then Mom dug out her lipstick for a fresh coat, and Dad got out to open my door. True waved when he saw me. Mom excused herself to go say hello to Dr. Woods. Once the service started, Mom and Dad... Mom and Dad stayed at my side, through the pastor's homely, the kind words and memories from childhood friends. The last person to speak was a short woman in a dark blue suit and a peacock-feathered hat who turned out to be Arvin's Aunt Tilda. Her eyes stayed dry, but by the time she was done, the rest of us were a mess. Afterwards, True came over to say hello and offered to drive me to the reception in his boat-sized Cadillac. I can bring her home, too he told mom and dad it's really no problem they gave each other the look again but i could tell they were they were relieved not to have to go i'm good with that i said mom asked if i had my phone which was like asking if i'd remember to bring both kidneys then she and dad took off and drove me to his house and even though we barely said a word to each other there was nothing uncomfortable about it we ended up in Brady Heights, an old neighborhood that had just been wide enough and just far enough away from Greenwood to escape burning in the riot. Home sweet home, he said, swinging the caddy into the driveway of a yellow bungalow with a magazine-worthy garden. Welcome to Mama Ray's. For the record, my knowledge of gardening begins and ends with the name of the guy who does ours. But even then I could tell that True's front yard was something special. There were flowers everywhere and bushes. Plumed prairie grasses and trees with blooms cascading from their tops like Fourth of July fireworks. Inside, the house was like one of those reconstructed historical rooms at the Smithsonian. The purple velvet sofa and chairs were old and formal. The floor and tables were made of dark, heavy wood. The lamps looked like they'd been around since electricity was invented. And there was an abundance of doilies. Seriously, they were everywhere. Mama Ray? True hollered. Be right there, came a voice from the kitchen. Based on the garden and the furniture, I was expecting a rosy-cheeked, unscarred, grandmotherly version of True. I was way, way wrong. For one thing, Mama Ray was black, and as far as I knew, True wasn't. Plus, she wasn't even that old. Forty, maybe forty-five, with a short-sleeved gray silk shirt that showed off seriously ripped arms. Her hair was in a medium-length afro, pushed back off. To- back off her forehead with a silver headband the surprise must have shown on my face you did it again didn't you she said true grin like he just pulled off the best prank in the world shame on you truman mama ray smacked his shoulder then shook my hand with both of hers he does that sometimes lets people think i'm his mother just to see their reactions but he ought to know better after everything we've been through Aw, oh, she likes it when I tease her, True said. Then he got all fake serious. For the record, Rowan, Mama Ray didn't give me my life, but she did save it. That's not true, Mama Ray told me. Truman saved himself. True got serious for real then. Mama Ray's the youth pastor at Grace Emmanuel. he said. I used to go to their Tuesday soup kitchen. Took three months of sitting next to me while I ate grilled cheese and sandwiches and tomato soup, but she finally talked me into rehab. Gave me her spare bedroom when I got out, too. If it weren't for Ray, I'd have been back out on the streets and using again inside of a week. Mama Ray smiled. We all make choices. I just gave you a few options that hadn't been available before. A car door slammed inside. Voices carried in from the driveway. Truman, sit this poor girl down before everyone arrives, Mama Ray said. She looks wrung out. True led me to a love seat. Mama Ray opened the front door and let in Dr. Woods and a stiff-looking black woman in a black suit both of them hugged mama ray like they'd known her forever and started toward me true kept behind them mouthing something i couldn't make sense of then i noticed the bottle of diet coke in the unfamiliar woman's hand and smiled i'd finally spotted the mythical janice who as it turned out was very sweet and apologized for not introducing herself at the clinic i meant to she said there's just always so much to do Dr. Woods put an arm around her shoulders and squeezed. Janice is a miracle worker. We couldn't survive without her. Then she asked about my symptoms, how I was doing, and said I could call her if I needed anything. More people came after that. Lots more. The ones who knew me said hello. The ones who didn't, I watched. At one point, there were so many bodies steaming in, arms full of hands and casseroles and desserts, that Mama Ray just threw open the door and got out of their way. And it hit me then that... For the first time in a long time, I was in a room full of people whose skin looked like mine. School, the country club, Utica Square, the Brady, and most of the places I went, I stood out. Yes, dad was white, but mom wasn't, which meant that to the rest of the world, I was black. At Mama Rays, I wasn't the awkward line in a poem. I fit the meter. I rhymed. And suddenly, I was breathing deeper than I had since Saturday. Mourners sniffled and hugged and talked quietly. I liked that some of them wore bright colors. One woman had a green pa- pant suit and a scarlet hat. Another had chosen Oh no. Another had chosen a flower dress and support stockings that stopped at her knees. Arvin's aunt Tilda was one of the last people to arrive. She zeroed in on True Straightway and pushed through the crowd using the pie carrier in her hands to nudge people out of her way. Once she got there, she hugged him, holding on so she could speak straight into his ear. True pointed to me, and Aunt Tilda raised a you-stay-right-there-young-lady index finger before she disappeared into the dining room with a pie. What? I mouthed at True. He gave me an eyebrow wiggle and went to greet people with Mama Ray. Next thing I knew, Aunt Tilda was on the love seat beside me. Hello, Rowan, she said. I'm Tilda. It's good to meet to know you. Guilt, frustration, and helplessness started up a nasty free-for-all in my chest, and the headache I'd been fighting all day thumped with my pulse. This woman had loved Armin. By failing him, I'd failed her, too. So sorry for what happened. I choked out. She patted my hand and studied my face calmly, saying nothing about the tears in my eyes or the way I was pressing my lips together and blinking fast to keep them from falling. The newspaper didn't give a lot of details, she said, but I know you're the one who was there. You gonna let it keep you down? It wasn't what I'd expected at all. Her nephew was dead and there she was asking about me. She leaned sideways, pressing her shoulder into the velvet of the loveseat. What I mean to say is, are you the sort that stays down or the sort that gets back up? It wasn't something I'd ever considered, but my answer came out before I knew it was there. I get back up. The skin around her eyes crinkled as she smiled. "'Good. Too many young folks these days think life owes them. "'I was hoping you knew better.' "'She looked around the room. "'Arvin was such a gentle soul,' she said. "'Loved making people happy. "'I remember once when he was just a little thing. "'He walked the two miles between his mama's place and mine "'to bring me birthday flowers, "'prettiest bouquet of dandelion and poison ivy you ever did see. "'But he was so pleased with himself, "'standing there on my front porch, itching, "'that I didn't have the heart to disappoint him.' So I put on my dishwashing gloves and dumped that poison ivy into an old coffee can with some water and set it out back. Washed the poison off his hands and arms the best I could, too, but by the next morning, he was covered in blisters up to his armpits. It was easy, picturing Arvin as a little boy, and I should have laughed at Tilda's story for her sake, but a tear ran down my cheek instead. She handed me a tissue from her big patent leather purse never knew anyone so good at making you laugh and cry all at once as my nephew he was something special i didn't know him very well I said but i'm going to miss him she patted my arm we all will honey now there's something i need to know and you're the only one who can tell me yes ma'am did he suffer she sounded strong but her lips trembled no i said and i sounded strong too and my lips did not tremble i owed her that much Tilda closed her eyes and whispered a thank you prayer, and when she was done, said quietly, Thank the Lord. That boy shouldered more than his share of hurt as it was. Then the softness in her her disappeared, and she put her purse strap in the crook of her elbow and stood up. You're a skinny thing, she declared. I'm getting you a slice of my pie before it's all gone. I thanked her and said I wasn't very hungry. Oh, you don't want to miss out on my pie. took me 40 years to pry that recipe out of my friend Opal's hands. It was her grandma's. She winked at me, best peach pie you ever had.